You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Turn to the book of Amos chapter 9. We're going to read uh, a couple verses there. And uh, we're, we're kind of in the habit, if you're new to Mill Sunday School, of um, actually kind of making you turn to the passage yourself. And so we don't put it on the board. Turn um, in your Bible, whether it's a PDA Bible, an iPhone Bible, or an actual Bible. Turn to Amos chapter 9. Amos is located towards the end of the New Testament, after Ezekiel, after the Psalms, right after Daniel starts the Minor Prophets. goes Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. And then I think the last chapter of Amos is Amos chapter 9, which we are going to read Amos 9, 1 through 4. And I should warn you that this passage of Scripture is not nice. It is, uh, often I read, uh, to begin our Mill Sunday Schools, I read very encouraging, nice passages that lift us up. This morning's passage that we are opening up with is not nice. It is God's judgment, His vengeance, and I thought I should warn you before I read it because, um, once again, it is not nice. It starts off like this. It says, um, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and He said, so who's saying it? The Lord. The Lord is saying it. God is saying what I'm about to read. And so God says, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of the people. So it's like, imagine a building crushing and, and killing the people. And this is what God is saying he's going to do. Um, he's going to bring the, the house down on the people. And then it says this. It's even more bold and more um, not nice. Those who are left, I will kill with the sto- sword. Not one will get away. None will escape. Though they dig into the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb to the heavens above, there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel, or just Carmel, that's a mountain in north Israel, I will hunt them down and I will seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command a serpent to bite them. Though they drive, they will be driven into exile by their enemies, and we'll talk about that in a second, give some context. And there I will command the sword to slay them. And then this statement, I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Let's pray as we consider this um, pretty horrible passage. God, we do, um, God, we know that you are a good God. God, we also know that you are a just God. And God, this, the side of your justice punishes sin It punishes unrighteousness. And while we think about that, God, may we never forget your love, your unfailing mercy towards us, your forgiveness to us when we respond to you. But God, we look today at passages of Scripture, God, where you are, you are, um, Eve, you are, you are just turn your back against sin. You turn yourself away from evilness, that, that, uh, the mistakes and sins that we do. And God, you, you do justly, um, punish us for sin, but you are a good God. You are a holy God. You are a mighty God. And God, may we understand the fullness of your justice and mercy today and the balance between them. God, we worship you and praise you. And everybody said, amen. And so today's message, uh, just to warn you for the whole message, it's, uh, I've titled it The Prophets of Doom. We're going to be looking at Hosea and Amos, these two books of the Bible that are about God's judgment. And oftentimes, um, I know that I don't think about God's judgment. I don't want to think about God's judgment, but it's very real 
and it is unfortunately uh, a big part of the minor prophets. I say unfortunately just because it's not fun to talk about, but um, we, we are a group of people in the Mill Sunday School that, that talk about things, and we're going through the minor prophets, and some of the subjects aren't fun, but we're going to go through them because it's in the Word of God, and, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to study the Word of God and understand who He is and how we should live according to His ways. Right? Right. Okay. So, in high school, I knew this kid that was uh, really into cheating. Has anyone ever, be honest, cheated on any test? Like everybody has. That's disturbing. But anyways, um, so this kid uh, in high school was really into cheating. And, and he was a really smart kid. It seems like the, most, the smartest kids often cheat in the most mischievous ways. They invent ways to cheat. And they're, and they're like the brilliant kids that don't need it. Like, oh, if you just spent the same amount of time studying as you did conjuring up ways to cheat, you would do better, right, on the test anyways. And so this kid um, that, that I knew, he was in high school, he tells a story of how he would, would cheat on every test, just or at least make uh, like a crib sheet, is what they're called, like an answer sheet, or the notes. He would, he would write notes on a tiny little pa- piece of paper and then roll them up and stick them in a pin or tape them on the underside of a band-aid that he'd have in his arm and like look peek at the answer and then put the band-aid back or he'd put like the answers somehow in a water bottle and so he could like look through the water bottle and see it but the teacher couldn't see it because it was like through a water bottle this kid just invented ways to cheat he was very smart and, and brilliant and i don't know why he cheated so much but he did um maybe just for the rush of it or just to know that he could get away with something but anyways this kid that was really into cheating um becomes a Christian in high school and, and decides that he shouldn't cheat anymore, which is probably wise because cheating goes against you know, the, the intentions of the test or to see if you actually studied. And if you didn't study and you're cheating on a test, then you're going against the established, you know, the authority of the teacher or the test or whatever. And so it's not good to do. It's wrong to, to cheat. And so this kid, become, on becoming a Christian, decided, I'm not going to cheat anymore. And he stops cheating for a while. And then he has a final exam in an algebra class and knows that he didn't study enough for his algebra final exam, algebra two final exam. And so he decides he's going to put together a little crib sheet, an answer key of, of things that he should have memorized, but he didn't, equations and formulas and things like that. And he does, he, he makes this little crib sheet. He cheats on his final exam on, I think he said he cheated on one or two questions only. He looked at the, his, his little crib sheet and, and saw the, the formulas that he was supposed to memorize, but didn't memorize. And he cheats on this algebra two final exam, um, goes away from the test, and as a Christian, as a new believer, he is very convicted about him. It's just cheated on the test. He's thinking, what should I do? What's the right thing to do? He's, he's this newfound conviction of the Holy Spirit upon him that, that, oh, he shouldn't have cheated on the test. What should he do now that he did cheat and, and time has passed? And he decides, I should go back and I should tell this teacher that I cheated on his final exam. And so he, his thoughts going into this was like, I'm just going to do the right thing. And I know upon doing the right thing that God will bless me. He's a Christian. He believes that um, like we all should, that God intends good for us and blessings for us. And he, he, he thinks that, oh, if, if I do the right thing, God will bless me. Maybe the teacher will just make me retake the test and he can get, a, get an A on it because he could study in between then and now. And, or he thinks, well, maybe the teacher will just ask him what questions he cheated on and count those as wrong. And he'll still end up passing the test. So he goes in and tells this teacher, I cheated on the test last week. Um, I shouldn't have, but I, I'm a Christian, and so I thought I should tell you that I cheated, I did wrong. And the teacher is just very nonchalant about it, very just straight-faced about it. and like, oh, you cheated? Well, then you get an F. 
on the final exam, period. And since you get an F on the final exam, the, the teacher redid his grade for the final, and the class, his final, final grade was a D, and so he didn't pass the class. And so the worst thing happened. He had to retake Algebra 2 this next year of high school, retaking the same math class he already took because he failed the final, because he cheated on the final. And if he didn't tell the teacher, then he would have just got the A on the final exam and went on from there. But he went back and he told the teacher, he did the right thing after doing a, a wrong thing. He cheated on the test. That was the wrong thing. But then he did the right thing by confessing that sin to the teacher. And God didn't bless him. God didn't just make it all right for him. God, uh, you know, he's this new Christian. He just believed that God would make it all right. And that didn't come to happen. He had to retake his entire test, or excuse me, retake the entire course the next year. And this person actually became my youth pastor when I was in high school. And I remember him telling the story. I think he told it a couple times because he just, he had this, this point in life that, you know, God does intend to bless us, but that this justice idea is still a part of God, that if we do wrong and we sin against him, then, then rightfully so, judgment should come upon us. And God's mercy and grace is, is to be balanced with that. But we shouldn't think that just because we're Christians, we, we have this nice, pretty life ahead of us. No, we, when we make mistakes, we should receive the judgment that is due to us. And that's kind of the message of today, which is not an easy message. I'm not very, sometimes I'm very excited to share messages in the Mill Sunday School. And I think just because of the, the heaviness of today, and we're talking about the two minor prophets, the prophets of doom, as they're often called. There's just this weightiness upon the message today. And so I'm just forewarning you about that and, and to, to think about that and consider that. Um, so let's move on and we'll come back to the, these prophets. Um, as far as announcements go, which we always do in the Mill Sunday School, I think there's just, uh, just to welcome you if you're new to the Mill Sunday School. If this is your first time, there, there should be visitor cards on your table, little uh, uh, yellow cards that say, get schooled, or I think they say visitor card. I forget what they say. This Mill Sunday School visitor card. If you fill that out and give it, uh, you can bring it up to me after Sunday School and meet me, or you can bring it to the nice people as you leave in the back, and we'll give you a CD, a worship CD of uh, some of the music, worship music that we recorded at the Mill on a Friday night, which, by the way, is our main meeting. Um, was anybody there at the Mill last Friday, this two nights ago? It, it was this message that Daniel Grothy spoke that was in, in some ways pairing itself with the message that we're going to speak today. And so I just maybe believe that God is speaking this for us as, as a people, as, as the Mill, that the message Friday night was, you know, God, we, God intends us to not bow down to the world around us. He intends us to only bow down to him. Um, it was a beautiful message. You should podcast it if you weren't there. But anyways, um, I say all that just to announce that we welcome you if you're new. The Mill on a Friday night at 7 o'clock. That's our main meeting, which of course you're invited to. So continuing on. Let's, let's move right along and talk about the, the prophets of doom. That's the first uh, bullet point in your notes, if you got some notes when you came in the door this morning. And let's just talk a little bit about the background of the prophets of doom. Uh, this will be a sort of a, a repeat, if you've been here the last two weeks, of, of how the minor prophets fall into the historical model of Judea and Israel. If you haven't been here, then this very quick review should hopefully give you just a little bit of context for the prophets. Prophets Hosea and uh, Amos. And so we look at the map up here. If you can see that from where you're sit, seating, seated, 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 gosh, I'm struggling today. Seated. Yeah, that sounds right. 
Um, so you see up here, the, the map is divided uh, between the top and the bottom. Israel in the north, often called the northern kingdom, sometimes called Samaria, sometimes called the ten tribes uh, of Israel. Are, uh, uh, that's in the north, and in the south is Judah. That's the kingdom of Judah, the kingdom of the south. Jerusalem is its capital. And what happens after David has a son named Solomon, who has a son named Rehoboam, who is this last king of the united empire of Israel uh, in Judea. They were united. And then during Rehoboam's reign, uh, a guy named Jeroboam, not to be confused with Rehoboam, splits off from the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, Israel, the ten, times, the ten tribes of Israel, are often considered the bad guys. And I say that with my air finger quotations because uh, what they did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the, the, the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, First Second Chronicles paint the northern tribes as the, the as the sinful nation that broke itself off from Judah, and they set up these idols. Here's a little picture of an artist representation of these uh, bull or cow idols that Israel set up, and they set up two of them. Here's some arrows pointing, if you can see that, one to the northern city of Dan and one to the southern city of Israel named Bethel. Everybody say Bethel. We'll go back to that city in just a minute when we talk about Amos. So just remember that in Bethel is this cow idol that the people of the north would worship. And so that's one of the things that makes them the bad guys. Air finger quotations once again. Because they have turned themselves from the Lord and have, have worshipped an idol. And so that, that whole nation is considered an evil nation. Although, as we're about to see, Hosea comes from that nation and he is a good guy. So um, that's the reason for the finger quotations of that evil empire, the evil nation of Israel, worshiping those false idols. And so the prophets of Israel, this is why we are taking the order of the minor prophets in the way that we are, are Jonah, Amos, and Hosea. Last week, how many of you were here for our study of Jonah? Talked about Jonah for a full hour. Today, we're going to talk about Amos and Hosea, the prophets of the north. And then next week, we will talk about the prophets of the south and begin with Obadiah. So that's why we're, if you're like, why aren't we just talking about the, the minor prophets in the order that's already in the Bible? Well, because we've grouped them together so that we could talk about them in groups and kind of understand where they're coming from. So the prophets of Amos and Hosea preach against the northern kingdom of Israel. They say, repent. God is going to destroy you. Both of them hint towards the exile and and a nation that is about to overtake them. And by the way, P.S., they don't repent. They don't turn from their wickedness. And guess who comes in to destroy them? If you know a little bit about the biblical history, you know that the Assyrians... See them come in? Uh, They come in and destroy the ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, in about the year 722. They they take over the, the, the capital city of Israel, which is the city of Samaria. They take in, they destroy Israel. Why? Would, would God allow that to happen? Well, that happened because the, the Lord s- told them it was going to happen because they were evil, they worshipped idols. And so we, we just get this question mark of what if the people of Israel repented and turned from their wicked ways? Would God have still destroyed them? Well, maybe not. Probably not. If we, we learned anything from last week from our, our friend, uh, the minor prophet Jonah, we know that he went to the Assyrians, their capital city of Nineveh, and he preached that they were going to be destroyed. And then what did the Ninevites do? 
They repented. They, they turned from their evilness. They turned from their wicked ways, and then God didn't destroy them. And so that's, that's at least this glimmer of hope in these books of Hosea and Amos that we're going to study today, that as God is, is saying, you're going to be judged, you're going to be destroyed. Well, maybe he wouldn't have, maybe God would have relented or changed his mind, according to what we learned last week in the Mill Sunday School about that, that debate between does God change his mind, that he would have come and, and we wouldn't have sent the Assyrians and destroyed them. But anyways, P.S., as a side note, they didn't repent. The Assyrians come in, take them over in 722. And so that's the doom that comes to the northern tribes of Israel. And so the next point on your note is this idea of doom. And we just need to talk about that for a minute because um, in some ways it's not nice to talk about. It's not safe to talk about the, the, the judgment and the doom of God. But but we should not ignore that. We should not, as Christians, evangelicals living today, I think we, we concentrate, and we should concentrate so much on God's forgiveness and God's love and God's mercy. But oftentimes we do that to such an extent that we just ignore the judgment um, that, that is prevalent in the Old and New Testament. This idea that God does judge sin and wickedness and, and turning from him. And this idea of fearing the Lord is something we often just don't like talking about. So we don't. And, and so today's message is about that. Um, and so it is weighty and heavy. But I was just thinking about the, the doom and the destruction that God um, brings sometimes to his own people. And I thought about just that, 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 that thought of who he is and what he does, that his justice it sometimes involves punishing, oftentimes involves punishing wrongdoing and sin. And so I, was, I, was, I spent all week preparing this message. I've been getting up early and, and reading through these passages and studying them. And on Thursday, right in here, was uh, New Life Church's, uh, we have a staff meeting every month of all the New Life staff. And, and Brady was up here after we'd just done some worship together as a staff. And Brady, Brady Boyd said, um, let's just call out one or two words for the, for titles for God. And so people started saying uh, awesome things like mighty counselor, uh, wonderful God. Um, he's good. You know, and, and we were saying amen to those things. And uh, so someone said ancient of days, which I'm just so literal. I was like ancient of days. That's three words. He just did. He didn't do what Brady said. So the, just, just to give you an idea of the things that go through my mind, it's like, no. And then it's like Dutch Duh, shut up, Joe. Don't be an idiot. And so, um, but I was, I was reading, the, the point of this is I was reading Hosea and Amos and studying these passages. And, and so uh, the, on my mind was just how God destroys evil and hates unrighteousness. And so as, as people were calling out wonderful God and Prince of Peace and these titles for God, I didn't, but I th- my, the thought went through my mind that I should yell out, Destroyer. <laughs> And I just imagine, like, if I yelled that, everyone would have just like, what is, Kirkendall, what are you, what? Idiot. Um, but, and, <laughs> but that, that is, like, sometimes how this, this balance that we have in our heads of, of God's love and mercy should be balanced with his justice. And part of justice is punishing wrongdoing. If we really understand how justice works, well, we should understand that it does involve 
the, the punishing or the stopping of evil and wickedness. And so I want to kind of bring that question back to you and let you think about it. I want to give you a discussion item to, to turn to somebody around you, um, to, to get into a, a table group, to, to invite people into your group, and just think about this idea, which is this big point of today uh, of studying Hosea and Amos, is how do we reconcile? And we should reconcile. We should balance God's judgment and his mercy. And so um, I'll give that to you as a discussion question, give you a few minutes to talk about it, and then I'm going to come out and ask you to, to share out loud um, the points that you talked about. So I'll give you a few minutes to dis- discuss that as a tables or as individuals. Um, so ready, get set, go. All right, I'm going to um, cut your conversations just a little short, if you could wrap them up. Um, because I'd love to hear from you. I have a microphone here uh, to, to listen so we can all hear kind of maybe what your table talked about, this balance, this reconciling of God's goodness, um, but also with his judgment, his mercy and his judgment. How do we reconcile those two things? And so get my attention, raise your hand. I'll come to you and bring you a mic. And if you're thinking about sharing, but you're not sure that you want to share, uh, someone brought in famous Amos cookies which, of course, are named after the prophet Amos. Um, and so you get a cookie uh, if you share as well. So we'll go over here to Aaron Higgins. He gets the first famous Amos cookie, if you would like it. Or you could give it away, uh, and then you could uh, share as well. Here's your cookie first. They're in there. Okay. All right, go ahead. I, I've never been rewarded in such a way. Um, <laughs> I might cry. <laughs> well, you, you can't have a merciful God without a God that brings judgment or who is just. You can't give clemency to something that there's no punishment for. If you stand before a judge and you go, okay, judge, I, I beg and seek your mercy, and he looks at you and he says, I have no mercy to give you because you haven't done anything wrong. You haven't been charged with anything. You're not facing any kind of punishment. What mercy is there to give? So it's, it's not that it's a yin-yang sort of thing. It's not like that there's this you know, balance between the two or anything like that. But it's the nature of God. In order for him to give mercy, he also has to be just. Okay, that's good. Yeah, so not a, uh, a balance so much as a kind of the re- rewording of the definition of mercy, that mercy has to respond to an actual judgment, a punishment. So without the punishment, there's no mercy. Yeah, Josh, here's your cookie first. There you go. It's it's so little, but they're so delicious, so (laughs) worth it. Okay, well, I want to read this verse real quick. Uh, It's a prophecy of Isaiah uh, after Jesus bore our judgment on the cross. It said, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. So I believe that the judgment that we we deserve was put on Jesus. So God is no longer, doesn't see us as sinful. He sees us as righteous. The only reason why we reap judgment is because we sow to the flesh and we reap corruption or we reap what we sow. That's a law. It's a spiritual law. Just like gravity, if you were to uh, jump up, well, you're going to fall down. Well, yeah. this is a spiritual law. So if you sow to to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. 
But God's judgment was put on Jesus, and therefore he sees us exactly like Jesus. And his mercy is, that's, that's yeah. all he has for us, is mercy and grace and love. His love is unconditional. Yeah, so it's this big ultimate picture of none of us are innocent totally. None of us are t- totally righteous. Therefore, we're all in need of judgment. But Christ takes upon the judgment himself, and, and then with that can show us Mercy. Yeah, Trevor, here you go. Here's your cookie first. You want a cookie? Uh, Before want I forget. Cookie? I don't want a cookie. You don't want a cookie? Oh, give me the cookie. Oh, he'll take it. Okay, okay, he takes it. Um, we kind of talked about three different things. First, um, we, th- um, we, we discussed the fact that, you know, although God does put judgment on us, he makes sure that the judgment is fitting whatever we did. Um, um, and the second thing we talked about was kind of, um, that judgment in itself can be merciful. Yeah. Um, like in the sense of Joe's story, he talks about the kid cheats on the test and stuff. Yeah. So obviously the kid didn't learn the, the, the material the first time, so failing him and having him go retake the class was kind of a merciful act to get him to um, Ultimately learn, to get him to learn. Right? To learn the, okay. uh, whatever he needed to. So, And then the third thing we talked about was that... Um, it was a really good point, right? Really good point. I don't remember. Here I'm sure it's really good. All right, I got a couple more cookies. Christina wants to share. You get a cookie. And then maybe one more after Christina. Here you go. All right. Um, okay. I just touched it, but That's my okay. fingers That's are clean. That's okay. <laughs> um, someone at our table had the insight that, like, God's, like, a really good parent to us. And so if a kid is doing, like, something wrong over and over and over repeatedly, and the parent keeps saying, don't do this, you're going to get grounded, don't do this, you're going to get grounded, but never, like, grounds the kid, then that's, like, really bad parenting, because then the kid's going to learn that, like, not to take their parents seriously, and that, like, they can just get away with anything. And God doesn't want us to not take him seriously. Yeah, that's good. Like, discipline is a part of love. Um, And so that, that being the other side of justice is this mercy to ultimately make you better in disciplining you. Yes. Okay. Last comment of the day. And cookie, of course. Yeah. There you go. Sweet. Literally sweet. <laughs> um, the one thing that uh, I was talking about was the fact that it wasn't, God's judgment isn't an instant, like, it, it wasn't, they screwed up and instantly everything died. There was Pete, there were prophets, there was Jonah came in and talked to people. That He sent people before him and said, hey, by the way, I'm going to do this. He gave them an opportunity so it's not just a, uh, we, we were talking about the justice and grace thing, or justice and mercy thing. It's not just a, uh, they're, they're, he's asking for a response from us. It's, yeah. it's not just, you know, a math equation of, okay, they did this, anything's wrong. They deserve this now. But there's also a, okay, if they respond to me, if they come back to me, then I will forgive everything. Yeah, and, so mercy is uh, always on the table. To, to be given, but, but uh, the, the people of Israel obviously did not choose that. They did not ask for repentance, and therefore God's judgment really did come to them. I just thought as in this reconciling God's uh, judgment and mercy, I thought of like a policeman sitting outside watching a burglar break into someone's house. Would that policeman be a good policeman if he just sat there and watched it? It's like, no, a, a just good policeman would, with force, potentially, if, if needed, stop that burglar from going into the house. Would a teacher who's a good, righteous teacher watch a bully kid beat up another little kid? No, that wouldn't be a good teacher to watch that. A good teacher would, would go over and, and with the authority that, 
that teacher had break up the fight and would potentially use force. And so that's how I see and, and that, that idea was touched upon in all the comments that I heard that, that without um, judgment, there, there couldn't be mercy. Without mercy, there, there, there needs to be justice as well. And so um, as we talk about that, let's, let's keep that idea in mind that, that God is both merciful and a just God, even though today we're specifically talking more about his justice and his bringing destruction uh, upon people that have been unrighteous and sinful towards him. And so we're specifically talking about Amos and Hosea. Specifically, they were prophets over Israel who turned their backs corporately upon God. And so let us start with Amos, who potentially came in history before Hosea. If you, uh, We keep putting out the uh, timelines on all the tables to get you familiar with this huge epic timeline of the entire Bible and how all the minor prophets kind of fell into place over the northern and southern kingdoms. And you can see the the kings of the north and the kings of the south and, and the good ones and the bad ones uh, highlighted in red or green and all the details that are on those timelines that we keep giving out. Um, and so feel free to look at that as well as the uh, turn back to the, the book of Amos and kind of flip through it. And you'll see that it's nine chapters. You'll see that the very beginning of the book begins with this phrase over and over again. You see this phrase, for the three sins, even four, I will not forgive uh, Judah. I will still bring destruction. For the sins, uh, three sins, even for of, of the, 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 this city or that city, I'm going to bring destruction. I'm going to bring doom. And on and on this, this, this book goes. Potentially, uh, many people could argue, commentaries have argued, that this book in the Bible, uh, especially paired with Hosea, are the most doom-filled books, the, most, uh, the books with the most destruction. And, and there's, there's other passages in the Bible that can be compared to these two books. And so it is kind of an opinion thing out of which you know, book of the Bible brings the most doom. But these would surely make the top five, for sure, the top ten list in anyone's list of the books bringing the most destruction and, and doom upon sinners. Um, and so the book of Amos is just that, uh, telling Israel to repent, telling Israel of the coming doom that is coming. And this, this interesting thing about Amos is that he claims to not be a prophet, which is kind of interesting. He says in one passage that we'll read in just a second in chapter 7, he says, I'm not a prophet. I'm a sycamore fig tree farmer, and I'm a shepherd. And he comes from this city uh, that's in the south, in the southern kingdom, uh, Tekoa, Tekoa, I think is how you say that. It's an ancient Hebrew name, of course. Um, and so he comes from the southern kingdom, and he goes to the north to preach against the north and the sins of the north and yet he claims to not be a prophet but we should kind of think about that idea that he was a prophet he was a prophet of the lord because we think of him as a minor prophet we give him that title in fact the new testament in the book of acts acts chapter 15 quotes one of amos's words and says the prophets are in agreement and then he quotes Amos. And so even the New Testament places back upon Amos this title of, of prophet. But he doesn't really consider himself to be a prophet, which is, brings up this bigger question of what is a prophet, which we can just take that question and open up a shelf and put that question into the shelf and then shut that shelf drawer um, until next week. And we'll, we will open up that figurative drawer and pull out that question of what is a prophet figuratively next week. And so if you're, if you're thinking about that question of what is a prophet, what is prophecy, we, we will get into that next week. But Amos doesn't think he's one. He's a, he's a guy that comes from the south 
goes to the north and preaches against it. He specifically goes to the city of Bethel. What was in Bethel? Do you remember? We just talked about it. A big cow idol in this temple that existed potentially to another god or potentially to maybe Yahweh, but there was this idol involved and you, people would bow down and pray to an idol and that's really messed up and that's, that's uh, turning your back against the true God, Yahweh, who cannot be worshipped in the form of an idol. And so what they were doing in Bethel was sin. They were worshipping an idol. And in Amos chapter 7, if you want to read along with me, I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1 and read this story that happens. And so we have this image of Amos, the shepherd, this uh, fig farmer going from the south, the, the good kingdom, finger quotes, to the northern kingdom, the bad kingdom, finger quotes, and preaching against it at the city of Bethel. And this is what it says. Uh, chapter 7 of Amos, verse 1. says, Then Amaziah, the, the priest of Bethel. So would Amaziah be a bad guy or a good guy? He'd be a, probably a bad guy since he's the priest of this idol god. He's a bad guy. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Jeroboam, king of Israel, bad guy or good guy? Bad guy, the king of Israel. Israel should give it away that, that all the kings of Israel were evil. Um, and and uh, just as a side note, it's Jeroboam the second, not Jeroboam the first. That's being talked about here. But anyway, side note. And so this Amaziah, this 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 priest of Bethel, this idol, says to the king of Israel, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And the land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos, our guy, the good guy, is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Which, by the way, P.S., is exactly what happens when the Assyrians come in and destroy Israel. They go into exile and they are taken away from their native land. So Amos, our homeboy, is preaching what is going to happen. He's bringing judgment upon Israel. And this priest of this idol is saying, Hey, king, get this Amos out of here because he's preaching evil against us. He's preaching that bad things are going to happen to us. And so then Amaziah says to Amos, our guy, get out of here, you seer, which is probably what most people would say when they're caught in sin and someone catches them in sin. Just get out of here. Leave me alone. I'm not, what I'm doing isn't that bad. Get, get out of here. And then he says, go back to the land of Judah. That's where he's from. Remember, he's from the city of Tekoa. Um, earn your bread there. Go and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. And then Amos says to Amaziah, this this priest of this idol, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and I took care of the sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to the people of Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. And he says, you say, um, so this is Amos quoting back, Amaziah's words, do not prophesy against Israel and stop the preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, and then so that's what you say. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. And so the Lord is going to bring judgment upon Israel. He says, your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and yourself will die in a pagan country. And Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. And so do you see this picture here of Amos, 
the guy that's just a shepherd, that's just a fig farmer, just, he's just making cookies, a famous Amos cookies, of course, in the southern kingdom. He doesn't claim to be a prophet, but he hears the word of the Lord. Go preach against Israel. Go, go say to them that they are in sin, that, that, that bad things are going to happen to them, that exile is going to happen to them. He goes and preaches there, and Amaziah and the king Jeroboam, they, they line up against Amos and say, get out of here. We don't want to hear your words. We don't want to hear the judgment of the Lord. Um, what they're, maybe what they thought they were doing was good in the eyes of the Lord. No, they weren't. They were worshiping an idol. They were, he, and so Amos preaches against it, that it's going to be destroyed. And ultimately, that's exactly what happens. Assyrians come in as God uses them to destroy the kingdom of Israel, takes them away, punishes them for their sins. And finally, we get to this one glimmer of hope in the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9, towards the end of the book, we have this, uh, it starts in verse 11. Um, Amos just talks about in that day, in the future, David's fallen tent uh, will be repaired. The broken pieces will put, be, be put back together. The Lord will restore Israel, which is this, just this ultimate promise that, the, that with it, with judgment, will come ultimately restoration. But it's, like, it's almost like the saying, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so and ultimately we see this glimmer of mercy of the Lord in the book of Amos, you know, after like eight and a half chapters, nine and a half actually chapters of like the destruction that is coming to Israel. Finally, this glimmer of in the end, I will restore Israel. So maybe once again, this balance between judgment and, and mercy that ultimately God is merciful. He is slow to anger. But he does need to punish unrighteousness and not let unrighteousness and sin go unpunished. And so that is, in a nutshell, figuratively, the book of Amos. And so with that, we move right on. And with the rest of our time, which will be very short, we will talk about Hosea, which I imagine... Lots of you have heard the story of Hosea, and I think second to Jonah, Hosea is probably the, the most famous prophet, only second to Jonah, as, as far as our understanding and our knowledge of them. Who would say Hosea is their favorite minor prophet? A few of you? Cool. His story is very, um, here's an early church uh, painting of Hosea, what he might have looked like, who knows, for real. He lived a very long time ago, um, before photographs and Facebook, so we're not, we're not sure if uh, exactly, but uh, Hosea is this. His story is is much more intertwined with Israel. He, for instance, comes from Israel. Remember, uh, Amos came from the southern kingdom and goes up to the north to to preach against the north. Hosea is from the north and preaches in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Hosea, his story is his story of bringing judgment upon Israel is very much intertwined with his own family, his own literal family, is intertwined with this message that he brings to Israel. Which, by the way, Hosea's family is pretty messed up. It would make a very entertaining uh, episode of Jerry Springer if, if in the ancient, maybe they had Jerry Springer in the ancient world uh, or some form of it. Uh, Hosea and his family would, would probably be the, the show of the year because this family was so messed up. Um, but Basically, here's what happens. If you want to turn to the book of Hosea, um, you can turn there and read uh, Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. It says that when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, and this is messed up, just to preface the the messed up-ness of this passage. Um, The Lord says, go marry a promiscuous woman. 
So go marry her. Like go have a covenant lifelong relationship with a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he went out, he married, um, went into a covenant marriage relationship with uh, a woman named Gomer. Horrible name for a girl, by the way, if you're thinking of girl names. By the way, it's a guy's name, first of all, because in the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Guy named Gomer. So somebody named their daughter Gomer. Well, horrible name. Anyways, side note, uh, Gomer, daughter of Bill Liam, and she conceived and bore to him a son. And so we get this picture, this this metaphor of of Hosea being told to go marry, go enter into a covenant lifelong relationship with a promiscuous, adulterous woman, because that is how the Lord feels when Israel turns its back upon the Lord and goes and worships other idols. It's, it's as if someone is cheating on someone else. And so this, this very uh, metaphoric passage of, of Hosea and his adulterous wife and God and this adulterous people, Israel, is being compared. And, and of course, um, maybe, maybe not of course, but um, some of us have read this book, Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. Anybody? Girls especially. Oh, look at all the hands. I see some guys raising their hands too. Um, I read it as well. It's, I, I, th- I just think if they would change the cover of this book, more guys would read it. Because it's, this, it's really this, this parallel story of Hosea and Gomer through the character of Michael and Angel. And how this character in this book, written by Francine Rivers, who is a Christian author today, um, writes about this relationship between uh, a man that goes out and seeks and kind of saves this woman from the sex slavery, sex sex trafficking, prostitution. He goes and saves her from that, marries her, and then has all these issues of this woman still going out and and, and sleeping around while he still loves her. And it's this this interesting, very redeeming love kind of love story. But but that is what it is. And and so it's based upon the book that we're now looking at, Hosea, which is, um, once again, kind of this messed up story of this man who is told to go marry a woman of unfaithfulness and they have a kid and they name the kid, their first kid together, Jezreel, which is the name of this city where a massacre happened. You can go, uh, if you want a homework assignment, go read Second Kings chapter 9. It's this bloody, horrible story of Israel coming down and destroying the city of Judah and kind of like coming down in peace, but then like just kidding and then shooting the other king in the back. It's a massacre that happens. And so the son of this, of this relationship, this marriage, is named Jezreel, which in my mind is just like a horrible name. Like you're naming your kid after this massacre. Be like naming your kid September 11th. Like that's messed up. Like this just every time this kid's name is said, it's like that's what people think of this massacre that happened, this horrible thing that happened. And then so they have a son together. Then in the context of Hosea, Gomer goes and has an adulterous relationship and has a kid with another man. And yet uh, Hosea ends up raising her. And, and get this, this is where the story gets even more messed up. And then and, and, and sometimes we bring thoughts to the story of like, is this metaphor or is this literal? And I think in this instance, we just hope that this story is metaphor and not literal. However, uh, it seems to be that this is a literal story. Remember last week we talked about Jonah. We talked about, is it, is it a literal story where a literal man gets swallowed by a literal big fish and then literally lives in that 
fish for three days and literally three nights? Or is it a metaphor? And we talked about the debate that's in the the Christian church. But this story seems like it is literal, but we can hope that it's a metaphor. And so going back to the story, um, they name this daughter Lo-Rahamah, which means, imagine calling your daughter with the, the name that means not loved. Like, oh gosh, that, that's horrible. And it, it goes on to say because that, that is how, you know, the, the Israel doesn't want to be loved by their God. And then they had another son. Actually, uh, a Gomer goes out and has another adulterous relationship. They have another son and, and he, they call him, the Lord says to call him Lo Amami, which means not mine. And so a father calling this son that isn't his, your name is not mine. I mean, imagine the, the family um, dysfunction here um, between Hosea and, and Gomer. And this whole thing goes on and we reach chapter 3 where we finally get some understanding of why this family is so messed up and why the Lord is calling uh, Hosea to marry Gomer. And it's all because of this metaphor between Israel and God and this husband and wife and the wife that is adulterous. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to me, um, so this is the Lord speaking to Hosea, Go show your love your, to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and she is adulterous. Love her as the Lord loves Israel, though they go to other gods. And it's this huge metaphor between a husband loving his wife and the wife is adulterous and God loving his people, Israel, despite Israel's uh, adulterous relationship uh, figuratively with, with idols and idol worship and going and loving and worshiping other idols, which is just this, this story as we conclude here. Of, the, of this idea, this, this reconciling of justice and mercy. And, and we can never get this idea that, you know, God is up in heaven um, just throwing like thunderbolts down to earth as people are sinning and messing up. He's just way away throwing down thunderbolts. No, it's, it seems much more that, that God is with us and God loves us like, like a husband would love a, a wife that, that, that continues to be adulterous and yet the husband still loves the wife. It's just this beautiful, horrible, but beautiful picture of how God loves us and is with us while he brings the punishment to us. He is not far off bringing it. He is right there, potentially weeping as he does it, potentially like a parent disciplining and not wanting to discipline, but having to discipline a child. God is the one doing the destroying, but in some ways maybe also getting hurt as he does it. And ultimately I say that because Jesus on the cross, God on the cross, Jesus' blood was real and it was red and the sting of death was real and it stung our God as he died. And so he is not far off bringing destruction, but right there. And I'll conclude with reading um, Hosea 6.1 that just says, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us to pieces. Who has done the the tearing? Well, God. He's he's there. He's the one doing the tearing. But let's return to him. He has injured us, but he will bind our wounds. That God is not far off as he um, punishes unrighteousness. And his love is right there as he, you know, as he wounds 
he will also bind up the wounds. As he smashes to pieces, he will also bring back together. But we can't forget, we can't just ignore that he is the one wounding. He is the one breaking to pieces. He is the one there punishing unrighteousness, but still loving. Um, he is right there with us. And so it's with that that, that we'll kind of conclude today's talk and, and pray and, and, and we'll kind of end there. I know that this, this message is heavy and weighty, but it, it, but it needs to be taught that the other side of mercy is justice. And I believe that the, the Lord is leading us through that as we study these minor prophets. So let's pray. God, we do tell you that we love you and we love your ways. God, we as a people, as the Mill Sunday School, are so sorry for, for sinning against you in each of every one of our lives as we daily turn our backs upon you. God, bring to us mercy. God, we return to you. Would you return to us? God, we know that you are, you are not far off. We know that you are here bringing mercy. But God, we, we repent to you of any sin that is in our life. God, we, we ask your forgiveness. God, we know that you will bring it. You will bring forgiveness because you are a good and ultimately loving God. And so God, we, that is our hope. We, we worship you this morning. We praise your name. And everybody said... Amen. All right, friends, uh, go in peace. We'll, we'll talk about the prophets of Judah next week. Peace out.